We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. You will, I trust, need no reminder that we are in the middle of the summer series, which we're taking some time to aim our focus at marriage and the family and singleness and relationships that God has ordained for us to glorify him uniquely in the closest of all the relationships on the planet. Last week, we began a uh, a study that included six points, and I didn't get through all of the six points. Better said, I only got through one. Um, And uh, my wife, uh, I had 19 pages of notes, and I got through nine, and my wife just now looked at my notes on the front row, and I have 17, and she said, honey, we need to talk about your math. So um, you can pray for us on this Father's Day as we uh, go and receive the Lord's, I receive the Lord's discipline. So, <laughs> Ephesians chapter five, familiar territory. In fact, a section that most of you, if not super familiar with, some of you may have even memorized it. Paul's talking about the application of being filled with the spirit In relation to husbands and wives, he says in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies and he who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. One of my favorite parts of being a pastor is the the opportunity to officiate weddings. I have the best seat in the house. As the couple begins a new life together, yesterday I had the joy and privilege and honor of doing a wedding of two in our church, Stephen and Crystal, maybe you know them. They stood on a stage and made vows with each other before God and the assembled witnesses. I think, I stopped counting, but I think I'm somewhere over 250 weddings that I've done and I never weary of them. Each time I do a wedding ceremony as a pastor, I am faced and confronted with the realities of the responsibilities I'm calling this couple to now honor and obey. And it actually becomes a mirror right in the middle of that ceremony for my own life and my own 
leading as a husband. Yesterday, I was particularly convicted because of the series we are studying on a husband and his headship. Let me quote to you what I told Stephen. And instead of listening to it as what Stephen heard, I want you to hear it as if it was told you as a husband. I said, Stephen, you are to acquaint yourself with and devote yourself to the Bible's teaching on marriage and headship and the family, as well as gladly submit to it as you put into practice all the treasures of wisdom you find there. You are to love Crystal as Jesus loves his bride, the church, giving yourself up for her. You are to assume and accept the responsibility for the spiritual, emotional, physical, and financial condition of your household. You are to instill into your children, if God grants them to you, a passion for himself and his purposes and his church. You are never to take away Crystal's primary duties as a mother and manager of the home. You are to have eyes and devotion only for this precious gift God gives you in Crystal today. And as you pursue serving the Lord now with Crystal as your complement, as your helper, then you will be able to say, Proverbs 18, 21, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I went on to say, Stephen, I just pulled it right out of the wedding. You have found in Crystal a very good thing and have received a blessing from God. She is given to you from the Lord, not to possess, but to serve and to cherish let me go back to that opening charge. This is the one that resonated me. And as I was reading that in the ceremony yesterday, I thought that's what I'm gonna begin the sermon with tomorrow. Stephen, you are to, husbands, listen to this. You are to acquaint yourself with and devote yourself to the Bible's teaching on marriage, headship, and the family. And gladly submit to all the treasures of wisdom you find about these subjects. That's the heart of this series on husbands. It's the heart of who we're to be. Men, we don't, we don't graduate into marriage and then we're done. We graduate into marriage and then we begin. It's an odd thing to be looking at this for me personally on a, on a Father's Day when when uh, most of the world says, well, let's look at fathers and honor them. And I think this, this passage just squares us up and says, you need to make sure that you've got your act together. As we said last week, just a brief summary, the, the section on the family in Ephesians 5 and 6, chapter 6 being the children, follows chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 that tells us God's intention is to sum up everything, this is the point of Ephesians, everything in Christ, a Christian family is to be summed up, articulated, find definition and identity, find instruction, admonition, correction, and fulfillment and joy in Christ. With this section, we learn two things about marriage, loving leadership and trusting submission. The husbands are called like Christ to exercise Loving leadership. 
and the wives as the church responds to Christ, the, the, church, the wives as the church responds to Christ is to exercise trusting submission. Those are the two principal pillars in this, in this passage, loving leadership and trusting submission. With that, we began looking last week at six commitments of loving leadership. Six commitments of loving leadership. The first is in verses 21 to 24, a commitment to headship. Now, I spent the better part of, of an hour talking about this, so I'm only going to summarize that. It's a simple admonition for a Christian husband to give leadership to his wife and leadership to his home. This is a leadership that is godly. A leadership that is caring, a leadership that is sensitive, a leadership that is loving, a leadership that is understanding, a leadership that is deliberate, a leadership that is engaging and relational. In short, it's a leadership that reflects Christ's leadership of the body of Christ, the church, the Savior and the sacrifice. I mentioned two terms last week that are going to be, be a kind of drug through this, um, this series as, as pillars because we have to talk about them, especially in light of current debates that are swelling around uh, contemporary evangelicalism and even on Twitter and Facebook. And those are the two terms, complementarianism and egalitarianism. The, the word complementarianism is really, I don't know, 25 years old or so in terms of its use, but it was, it was put into practice as a response to a drift out of the women's liberation uh, movement out of the 60s to make a correction with uh, women who were not understanding their roles as wives and not understanding their roles in the church biblically. Complementarianism then is, this is repeat, review, men and women were created equal in essence before God. Please hear me say that. Equally created in the image of God. But distinct in our roles. This was God's design in the creation. And God actually uses in 1 Corinthians the analogy of the Trinity to teach this principle. We don't look at the Trinity and say, oh, there's better and worse and, and, and first place and second place. We say there's relationships between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And Paul uses that as an analogy to say, just as the Son submits to the Father, wives submit to their husbands. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Let, let me make sure that you know how to spell complementarianism because there's, the difference between the E and the I is really important. It's complementarianism, C-O-M-P-L-E, not I, E. means complete. It's complete. Uh, it, the dictionary defines complete or complement as this, something that completes or makes perfect. Either two of the parts of the same things that are needed to complete the whole, they are counterparts. In other words, God gave the woman, we looked at this last week, in the Garden of Eden to make man complete. Egalitarianism, on the other hand, is that God made male and female equal in all respects, not just in essence, but also in roles. There's no limitations or distinctions between men and women in marriage and in the church. That's egalitarianism. 
And let me just say, as graciously, with a smile, and as humbly as I can, Mission Road Bible Church is unapologetically complementarian. Verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. That subject is borrowed, be subject or submissive is borrowed from the previous verse, which says that uh, we are to submit to one another. Yes, we submit to one another by honoring the Lord and correcting one another as Christians, but wives specifically have a relationship in their submissive roles to their husbands and their husbands, as we saw last week, alone. We will cycle back to that when we talk about wives in just a few weeks. Last thing I want to do in, in reviewing is to remember that there are two sides of, of a road that are ditches. And if you fall in a ditch, you get stuck and it's not a good thing. We need to stay in the middle of this road if we can. The first ditch you could fall off in and understanding headship is domineering authoritarianism. Overbearing leadership that does not honor uh, the wife as a co-heir with Christ, what Peter calls her as his completer, as his cherished relationship. If you are a domineering authoritarian in your relationship with your wife, and as we'll see later with your children, you are outside of God's will and in sin. The other side, the other ditch is passive inattention. Just being passive, it's, it's flattening out our headship so that an undue burden of leadership is given to our wives, sometimes even our children. It's democratic in all respects. It's willing to let our wives or even pushing our wives to take our place as leader in the home. Both of those, those extremes must be avoided at all costs. I was talking to someone before the service, we were admitting that we sense that our hearts as men can bounce back and forth between these ditches, not only month by month and week by week, but hour by hour. We're not dictators in our leadership. We are leaders, men, as Christ leads the church. Now we come to number two in this second commitment of loving leadership. Underneath this umbrella of headship and being the, the, the leader of the home, secondly, a commitment to love. Not only a commitment to headship, but a commitment to love. Verse 25, husbands, it's a direct command. Agape, love your wives. Important qualifier, underline this, highlight like this, put an asterisk by this. Whatever you do in your Bibles to mark this, man, this is one to mark. As just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, there were many Greek words that uh, we translate into the one English word love. It's a rather unfortunate thing. The four most comprehensive uh, are storge, phileo, eros, and agape. Now, only three of those show up in your, in your Bibles, but there were some 27 cognates of Greek words that were used in the ancient uh, Near East that we translate in, in English, love. Storge was a familial love for siblings and, and, and parents and children. Phileo is a heartfelt, tender affection. It really can be translated, you like someone. Eros is sexual desire and lust based on what's attractive and the object loved. I find it interesting that that 
verb does not occur in the Bible. And then third, agape, or fourth agape, an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Agape is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. It's the love that God has to man, the love that he calls us to have in reflection of him to other believers, to our wives and and to our children. I don't know where the phrase came that you fall into love. But it's kind of a stupid thing. I was walking along and I tripped and I was on the ground and lo and behold, I was in love. What does it mean? I fell. I fell into love. It almost sounds like an accident or, or passive or something you didn't intend. I don't remember ever falling when I thought, oh, that was wonderful. You don't fall into love in marriage. Men, we make a commitment in love. This is the same love that is defined in 1 Corinthians that we give not only to, I hear this in a lot of weddings and it's wonderful to use in a wedding, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but this is the kind of love that we're called to have toward each other in the body of Christ. It's the same word imported to have with our wives. 1 Corinthians 13, verse four, love is patient. Men, do a little little, uh, checklist in your own soul right now and look at how we love our wives. How would you do on a scale of one to 10 in each one of these words? Love is patient. How patient are you with your wife? Especially when she says, this is a much longer way to get there than I would have chosen. That's from books I've read. Love is kind, It's kind. I looked up this word in the Greek and you know what it means? Kind. (laughs) You know what a cognate of it is? This was in in my lexicon. Nice. (laughs) Husbands, are you nice to your wife? It is not jealous. Love does not brag. This was particularly convicting to me. I I found, and I wish my wife would pluck her ears right now. I found so many things that I say in conversation with my wife. I say so that she'll say, good job, honey. I feel like leaning my head over and having a little pat. (laughs) Love doesn't brag. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't look to the one who's loved and say, look at me. Love does not act unbecomingly. It it doesn't act in a way inappropriately. It does not seek its own. Sounds just like Ephesians 5. It's not provoked. That means it's slow to anger. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Every time an argument comes up, the husband doesn't say, well, I'm glad that we're talking about this because I have 17 other things as collateral issues that need to be brought up into this moment. By the way, all of these are commandments to Christians for everyone. So ladies, you can measure yourself as well, but that's for another sermon. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. We'll come back to that. Rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things and it never fails. 
for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live or see the Lord Jesus return. That's what love is. Remember, it's critical to note that this word love is is a word that we're all commanded as Christians to employ with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, but only Christians can do this as we imitate Christ and his love. Take all that data and bring that back into Ephesians 5. This is the kind of love a husband is to have for his wife. Here we find a direct command. A husband is told, love your wife. And then the significant qualifier, as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. In other words, his life was not about himself. His life was about the bride he was purchasing the position of leadership in marriage, in a marriage relationship that God has given to a husband is not based on ruling, on dominating, on being in control, on commanding, on, or, or subjecting others underneath us, especially our wife. It is based on imitating Jesus Christ. A few months ago, I had a couple ask, what's the best, they were engaged, what's the best book we can read about getting ready for marriage? And I said, the gospel of John. But I mean like a book. The gospel of John. But we want, a, we want a book. I think it's a book. Isn't it the gospel of John a book? And they said, why? I said, because you're called to love like Christ. And the only way you're going to learn to do that is to look at Jesus. This kind of love has no boundaries of sacrifice to bring good to the one loved. It's based on the analogy that you would even be willing to die for your wife, husbands, because that was Jesus' ultimate expression of his love. But what does this kind of love look like? Now, I find it very interesting, very interesting. Sometimes exegesis when you're looking at a text, you not only look at what's there and what's said, but you look at what's not said. Paul doesn't flesh this out. And the reason he doesn't, Lord willing, we will get the next week or the next, because you live with your wife with all understanding in an understanding way. And the way I love Kim may look different than the way you love your wife, because we understand what it means to them to be loved. He doesn't go into particulars. He doesn't say, husbands, love your wives and get them a dozen roses twice a month. Love your wives and give them chocolate and caramel. Actually, my Bible says that. No, it doesn't. No specifics are given. Isn't that curious? You just want to say, how? Paul, do I love my wife? And Peter will tell us next week, you do that by living with her in complete and all and expert understanding. So just hold that thought. The bottom line is we find this by, by the analogy. Biblical love by looking at Christ is active and it's tangible. It's active and it's tangible, man. 
The enemies of a husband's love for his wife are indifference and ignoring her. Just indifference and ignoring her. In other words, this husband that God would honor here has a pattern and a reputation for sacrificial sacrifice for his wife. He deliberately and intentionally makes sacrificial efforts to demonstrate to his wife that she is the most important person on the planet to him. He aims to serve her. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, 45 says. Her needs and her desires are put continually ahead of his own. Men, that means we are the first to repent, the first to be soft in an argument, the first to lead in spiritual reconciliation. We are to be the initiators in reconciling relationships just as Jesus is the initiator in ours. We're not to be defensive. I just think of Jesus who was silent before his accusers and they were wrong and he was right. This man wants his, to make his wife feel like she is loved like no one else on the planet was ever loved by another person and no other wife was ever treated so sweetly as, as you treat her. Puritan Henry Smith said this. This is, I say this in every wedding too. Listen to this, Kira. I'll read it a couple times. First, a man must choose his love. Right? You decide who you're gonna marry. First, a man must choose his love, but then he must love his choice. Excellent words. Too many men make a choice to, choose, to love a woman. They walk down an aisle, they exchange rings, they walk out, but they are unfaithful in the ongoing loving of their choice. How do you love your wife? How do you, how do you honor this? When I wrote this in my notes, I hesitated before I pushed period. Because I knew I was going to have to do this. Have you ever sat down and simply across the table, perhaps holding the dear hand of your sweet beloved and said, honey, what are the best and most meaningful ways you feel loved by me? You want to get even more challenging? Why don't you say, tell you what, let's take five minutes. I'm going to write down all the ways I think you enjoy my expressions of love. And you write down in five minutes all the ways that you love to be loved by me. And then, uh, then compare notes on that one. My suspicion is she will write something like this. Unhurried, detailed communication. Unhurried, detailed communication. Again, this is from books I've read. I think she might also say, I'm the manager of the home. Can you make that easier for me? Can you put your dishes into the dishwasher, not just the sink? Can you put your clothes in the hamper, not the floor? Can you not leave messes behind? Can you wipe your crumbs up? Can you, can you, can you, you fill in the blank? Again, books that I have read. 
I think she would also put, lead me in making the most significant decisions in our marriage. I've never met a godly woman who did not long for her husband to lead and bear the weight and the burden of the significant decisions in their marriage and in their family. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you make them authoritatively. That doesn't mean that you make them alone. I I can't remember a significant decision in our marriage that I've made without my best counselor putting input into my mind. That's Kim. But ultimately, we need to bear the weight for those decisions. And I think she might say something like this. Know what makes me feel loved. We'll get more on that next week. You are called to be an expert, men. An expert on this planet on your wife. And what makes her feel loved. What brings her joy and satisfaction. And we'll flesh that out in living with her in an understanding way in the future. A commitment to love. Are you committed to love? Like Christ loved. Not just feelings. And I was talking to my son in recent months about getting married. He was married last month. And I remember saying, John, all these all these wonderful emotions you feel, the butterflies in your stomach, this great anticipation of this day, that's wonderful. It's God-given. Praise God for that. But it won't always be like that. It comes down to a commitment. Love is a commitment made, not just a feeling experienced. If that's the case, when feelings wane, then you're not responsible to act on those emotions lack of feelings. It's a commitment made even and almost especially when the feelings are not present. Number three, a commitment to holiness. And honestly, each one of these points could be, could be uh, fully expressed in not a week, but months. A commitment to holiness, verses 26 and 27. So that he, that is talking about Jesus, might sanctify her, that is the church, his bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, this, this laundry language, looking at a, at a, at a, at a garment, no spots, no, no wrinkles, it's been ironed out, any such thing, but that she, this is Jesus in the church, that she, the church, would be holy and blameless before our husband, the Lord Jesus. Remember, this whole thing is built on that reciprocating analogy. Marriage represents the gospel. The gospel represents marriage. So we can take how Jesus is committed to the holiness of church, the church, his bride, as, as, a, as a, an admonition to husbands on how we're to be committed to our wives' holiness. The way that Christ loves us as the church moves us to holiness and purity and so should a man's love for his wife push the relationship toward righteousness and holiness. Men, we are called to lead and protect our wives in this area. Singles, girls, watch how a man protects your holiness in any context. Men, who are single, how are you beginning to learn how to pursue and protect holiness in your relationship with any and every woman? 
The ultimate accountability is that we will present our wives, men, to God someday, and the test will be whether or not we preserved and protected and promoted her holiness. Here's a stunning question. (laughs) Is your wife more holy and more like Jesus? She hates sin more because she married you than if she had remained single or married anyone else. A godly man's primary goal is not what he can get from his wife, but how he can honor and keep her pure. And notice what Jesus uses in this passage by the washing of water with the what? The word. In other words, protecting the marriage in sanctification and in honor and in holiness means that we are having a discipleship relationship with our wives in Scripture. There's a biblical bridge between a husband and a wife that that calls one another to that. Now, you may say, what if my wife is an unbeliever? We're going to come to that when Peter addresses that. A godly husband's biblical mind is literate and knowledgeable in Scripture. So let me ask you, men, is your wife more holy and Christ-like because she's married to you? To you. Does she hate sin? Under your influence? Can her compromises in any way be traced to our inattention and our unholiness as Christian husbands. We're gonna talk about this more on Sunday nights in in July, but let me just make it a little bit more uncomfortable. Men, do you put your wife in a tempting or uncompromising or compromising situation when she watches TV shows or movies or unwholesome conversations? Do we protect them from that or facilitate engagement with sin? Do you watch your language? Do you watch your joking? Do you watch your conversations around your wife? Our aim, men, is to protect our wives' purity and holiness as passionately as Jesus aims to protect ours as believers. It's a simple analogy. Do you have time in the word with your wives? Which in some senses is easier than do you talk about the word all the time? Does scripture become the thread that stitches all of your conversations together? And this may seem an odd thing to say because Jesus didn't need this, but you and I do. As as Christian husbands, are we correctable and teachable before we assume the position of corrector and teacher? Is your wife's holiness one of the chief aims of your relationship? Number four, a commitment to cherishing. A commitment to cherishing. And this is gonna mess with some of your men's Uh, personalities, as it did mine. So, verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as (laughs) their own bodies. 
Paul makes the assumption, I know you love yourself. Any person who says they're struggling with self-esteem, who says, I just don't like myself. I hate myself. I don't love myself. That's a lie. The problem is, you don't love them as much as they love themselves. And that's a problem. The Word of God says we all love ourselves. We have self-preservation, instincts. Husbands ought to love their own wives as the given, as they love their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Why? Because the two are one flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Here's the analogy. Just as we nourish and cherish and feed and clothe and demonstrate all manner of preference to our own desires... We're to do that with our wives because Christ also does the church. He cherishes and nourishes because we are members of his body. Then he says, the two shall become one flesh as we looked at last week, quoting Genesis in verse 31. Man, we spend a lot of time taking care of ourselves. For some, the mirror is the most important piece of furniture in the house. We dress ourselves, we exercise, we eat, We exercise reflexes. The bottom line is that we are naturally prone to provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, preserve ourselves, take care of ourselves. And Paul says, just as you do that in your own life, that's to be exercised with your wife. He uses the baseline of self-care for men to think about how we ought to care for our wives. Two verbs are here, nourish and cherish. He's instructing husbands to cherish and nurture your own wife. The Greek word for nurture is very interesting. It basically means to bring to maturity and is most often used of raising children. Nourish means you disciple your wife. Now that doesn't mean you sit your wife down this afternoon and you say, okay, honey, this week I'm gonna consider you as a six-year-old. And if you respond well, next week you might be 10. That's not what it means. It just means the care that we have to want our children to be the best, to grow, to, to, to be mature. That's what we want our wives to experience. The Greek word for cherish, men, I'm not making this up. This is the lexicon that I, I read, the dictionary, the Greek dictionary. This is what it says, cherish. The Greek word means to soften or warm with body heat. It's described of a mother bird as she sits on her nest waiting for eggs to hatch. Don't run and look at this, but outside my office, there's a bird nest that I've been watching for a few weeks. I watch it every day. I've seen the, the mother bird the hen just sit on those eggs for a few weeks now. I've seen the male bird fight off other birds flying into my window at one point in protection. And now there are little birds that I can see with their beaks up and the mom feeding them. That mother bird has sacrificed her own life to care for those chicks. That's the verb for cherish. What does that look like in practice? 
Well, as I said, we'll dive deeper into this from Peter's pen. But it means to live with our wives in all understanding. Knowing the vulnerable position that submission puts them in. This kind of love is soft and caring. Listen, men, masculinity does not mean that we are rough and tumble with our wives. It looks out for the softer side of our wives with a tenderness and consideration that is marked by the tenderness and consideration of a savior who cares for our every need. Do we truly cherish our wives? Does your wife hear from you regularly that she's the apple of your eye, that she's she's the affection of your heart? When's the last time you told your wife, if I could go back X many years and do this again, I'd do the same thing with you. Is she confident in your care for her? Does she trust that you'll live in a way that looks out for what's best for her? Do you spend money in a way that considers her? Do her desires and needs motivate you to make her happy? Do you know what her desires and needs are? Or do you just assume them? Are you an expert on her? Or said negatively, has she made her desires known to you and you've neglected those requests sometimes for years? I love Matthew Henry describing Eve, we've talked about this before, being created out of Adam. Taken from the rib. Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. I love that poetic description. Do you love your wife by cherishing her, by liking her, by desiring time with her, by making her life better because she is married to you? Wow. Number five, we'll move quickly. A commitment to the gospel. A commitment to headship, to love, to holiness, to cherishing, and a commitment to the gospel. Verse 32, this mystery is great husband and wife, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. As I said before, this is the only reciprocating analogy in the New Testament where marriage illustrates the gospel and the gospel illustrates marriage. In fact, he goes back and forth where he says, nevertheless, but I am talking about this. I want you to know that I'm speaking with reference to Christ and church. Nevertheless, I'm also talking about husbands and wives. He bounces back and forth. No other relationship on earth is so closely or so fully a mirror of how God relates to his people than marriage. This means they both need to be understood to better understand the other. Let me say it this way. If you want to understand the gospel, study marriage in the scriptures. If you want to understand how to have a better marriage, study the gospel. Those are intended to feed one another's practical application and theological understanding. The better a husband understands the gospel, the better he will understand how to lead and love and serve and cherish his wife. And the better we lead and love our wives, the more fully we will not only understand but demonstrate to a lost and dying world, this is what the gospel looks like. 
Have you ever thought about the fact that based on Ephesians chapter five, men and women, our marriage might be the most powerful evangelistic tool we have in our lives. Do your neighbors know that you're, the way you relate to one another is like Jesus and the church? Do they see something is different about how you, how you act with each other? They should because we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and understanding all the more how to be like him and serve him better. Let's think about this theologically. For a Christian couple, every problem, every trouble, every conflict, every dissatisfaction, every disillusionment, every disappointment, every discontentment comes back to our failure to rightly apply the details of the gospel in our marriage. I wanna say it again. For a Christian couple, Every problem, every trouble, every conflict, every dissatisfaction, every disillusionment, every disappointment, every discontentment comes back to a failure to rightly apply the details of the gospel in our marriage. On the other side, every point, of, this is encouraging, every point of traction that we gain for our happiness in the enjoyment of marriage is directly related to growth in gospel theology and in gospel understanding. We don't understand the good news that Jesus saves sinners by the death of his sacrificial offer of himself to the Father as, as a substitute in our place, dying for us and rising again. If we understand that, we understand marriage better without anyone telling us, buy roses and chocolate. It's not just for when we come into salvation, it's how we grow in salvation. Number six, a lot of this we're gonna cycle back through in the coming weeks. Number six, not a typo, a commitment to commitment. A commitment to commitment. Verse 33, nevertheless, he just talked about Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. The wife must see to it that she submits to or respects her husband. This is a simple point. It's the kind of love our Lord has for his bride that makes us secure. There's no fear of rejection. There's no fear or threat of divorce. The Lord's love is enduring and eternal. Can I just give you a real practical aside for a minute? Men, women, as Christians, I cannot be strong enough on this, this moment, please. Heads up, look up, listen up, right? As a Christian spouse, the thought and God forbid the word divorce should never be entertained or spoken. Never. There is no back door in our relationships as believers. If you have ever spoken that as a threat, I would beg you to beg your spouse for forgiveness. Commitment means forever in a Christian marriage. We'll get to that specifically in Mark in just a few 
weeks. Don't use that as a threat. Don't use that as a security blanket. Oh, there are biblical reasons for divorce, divorce but that's another, that's another sermon. This kind of love, this kind of man understands and facilitates forgiveness and reconciliation in all conflicts with his wife. Love is not some willy-nilly infatuation that puts you on a cloud of emotion and gives you butterflies and it sustains itself by these ongoing feelings. True Christian love, a Christian man's love, a husband's love for his wife is deeper than that, connected to the love that Christ has for us. It is inseparable. And it may sound strange to hear, but in a biblical marriage, the couple openly admit, I said this in the marriage yesterday, a couple openly admits that they love someone more than they love their spouse. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And the deeper we love him, the more and the better we love our husbands and our wives. There's an old West King song that I love. He sings of his wife and his wife's love for Christ. And the chorus says, there's another man in her life. When you hear the full stretch of those lyrics, he's talking about Christ. I want Christ to be the man and the savior that my wife loves the most because the more she's attached to and attracted to him, the better Christian she is and the more fulfilling marriage we enjoy. And the same applies to me.